Good morning. Good morning. This morning we enter into the presence of the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ to worship Him. He, God invites us to come boldly into His presence, to commune with Him, to worship with Him. And it's because Jesus lives that we are able to come into God's presence this morning and to worship Him and to give Him the honor and glory that's due His name. So I invite you this morning to reverently stand and as we celebrate our God being alive.
God, we thank you that we can come into your presence because you are alive and well. And to come like this together corporately with brothers and sisters in you and worship you and honor and adore you. We uh, thank you for this day in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. You've got some great people sitting around you. Just take a moment and say good morning to them and then you can be seated. Good morning. Happy Sunday. Super excited to be able to be here and worship God. We had a great uh, men's breakfast. You, if you missed men's breakfast yesterday, you really missed out on awesome biscuits and gravy. And we had 41 guys that filled the room. It was, it was just an incredible time. Super excited about all that God's doing. One of the things that we're learning um, this post-pandemic and just all of this is the amount of new people that are coming to the church. Yeah, and we're meeting new people all the time. We met a bunch of new people yesterday, and women's ministry is growing, men's ministry is growing, the church is growing, and all of that. But one of the common things that's happening is people are going, well, who are all these new people, and how do I get connected? So we got we got a number of different ways for you to be able to get connected with the church itself. And we want to show it to you on, on how you can do it. Um, so we have a little video that, that Rachel put together. Um, to show you the different ways, and then we'll talk about it in a minute.
I bet you didn't know there was all those different ways to be able to get connected. And, and the important thing is we want to get as much information out to you. We live in an age of technology and, and everybody's got their smartphones and all those things. Some people are scared of technology. Don't be afraid of it. But there is a way to be able to, to, be able to communicate and we use that. God, we thank you for this time. We thank you that we can gather together as, as your people that are called by your name. That your church is called to be a light uh, in a very dark place and to come alongside those that are hurting. Lord Jesus, you'll, you modeled that when you did that for Paul as we'll study today. Lord, we do pray for those that have, have suffered loss um, due to this great earthquake. And we know, God, where there is difficulties and hardship, you can shine. So be with those that will bring ministry to this, these Muslim countries, that the Word of God would go forth and people would come to faith and that they would know love through the hands of believers and that they would hear the gospel. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. We have a King of glory that we can run to and worship. And uh, when we get discouraged, we don't have to be discouraged because He is there to meet our needs and to encourage us and give us hope. Let's stand together and continue to worship our God.
who is strong and mighty. Freedom is in his name. Open the gates of heaven. Send out a shout of praise. There is a lion roaring. Jesus, the King of glory. The lion roaring, Jesus the King of glory.
because we know that he rules and he reigns for eternity. We can come to him knowing that he is the God who supplies our needs and he provides our daily resources because of his great love for us. And as we do, because of that, we give back to him. It's an act of worship. It's an act of obedience. So ushers, if you'll come, let me pray over our offering. Worship through offering and continue to worship through song. God, now and always, now the immediate, when we have needs, you are here. But we also know for always, you are the same. And we will one day be in your presence and never be away from you. And be able to commune with you face to face and worship you. Until then, we put our trust in you. We give back to you as an act of worship. And we thank you for blessing these resources and using them for your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.
you do lead us. You're amazing. You've given us such a good foundation that we can build our life, God. We just need to turn to you and keep building that foundation. Just open our hearts today as we listen to Pastor Kerry and he gives us those words to help us build that foundation, God. And just thank you for everything that you've done in each and every one of our lives. Amen. If you would, find your way over to Acts chapter 22, verse 30. We're going to start there and then get into Acts 23 as we continue in Luke's account of the beginnings of the early church. We're in the narratives that describe Paul's trials and difficulties. It's not a matter of if there's going to be storms in life. It's a matter of when. You can count on the fact that you're going to have storms that blow in. Difficulties. I came across a quote that said this, Sometimes God calms the storm, but sometimes God lets the storm rage and calms His child in the storm. Think about that. I would rather, if there's storms coming, that God would divert the storm, wouldn't you? Just watch it go by. But there are times when God allows the storm to come in, but then calms us in the storm, within this. What storms has God allowed in your life? What storms has God allowed to rage within your life So that he could be the calm in that storm. See, when storms come, we get to a place where we're done. Have you ever been in that place where you got pushed to the edge, you you got no margins left, and you go, okay, I'm done, I quit. I call you, if you know me, I call them El Pollo Loco days. You know, yeah, pastors can have storms, and it's El Pollo Loco days, and you're like going, well, what's an El Pollo Loco? If you're from California, you know what it is. It, it, yeah, it's crazy chicken, but, 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 you know, you get to those points where you just go, I'm done. I'm going I'm to quit the ministry, I'm going to quit working with people, and I'm going to open up an El Pollo Loco restaurant. Why? It's simple. Beans or rice, corn or flour, chicken, you're done. Move on. We call them El Pollo Loco days, you know, and it, it, but God doesn't allow that. And so Lord's kept me doing ministry for about 35 years now and within this. And, and every time when I think I'm done, God says, no, you're not done yet. But, but we get done because we, we hit this limit. And the limit is different for everybody. It really is. You, you can't say, well, you, you know, now, now you've hit that limit. Now you're done. Some people can take more than others, but we get to this place where, you know, the the docs that have like lots of letters behind their names, they they call it burnout. Um, They call it emotional exhaustion or or emotional fatigue. But basically you just get you get pushed to the limit where you just are done. All you moms with little children, you know what that's like. When Wendy had, you know, our, our twins. Uh, she would she would say they're yours, and and I would do the stupid husband thing and say, well, did you have a bad day? 
You ain't seen bad yet, so. But we get to this place where we're just done. And God gives us a promise that he'll be with us. But so many times we we hear the promises of God, but we really don't embrace them or experience them like we can or should. When we think about one of the things that God tells us, and, and, and he gives us his promise, I'll never leave you, nor will I forsake you, I'm going to be with you, I've got a plan for you. And we say, that's all well and good in the future, but I want now. I want now and I want to be out now within this. And sometimes it seems like the promises that God makes for those futures and the future calming doesn't really happen. So we get frustrated. You probably know people or maybe you've been in that position where God didn't act fast enough. And when he didn't act fast enough, then you start questioning God's faithfulness and and God's promises. There's a great verse that, that we teach the kids in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not to your own understanding, but in all your ways, what? And what? He will direct your paths. Sometimes we get into this and we say, God, move faster. God, I want it now. And we hit these emotional limits where the attacks just keep coming and and we get discouraged, and we get to this place where we just want to check out, and God says, but I'm not done yet. We're still working the plan within this. Well, that brings us to Paul. Now, keep in mind, Paul has been serving the Lord for a good number of years. He's traveled throughout Asia, Macedonia. He's been sharing the gospel. Church has been planted and all of these things. He's back in Jerusalem, and now he is in the storm of trials. The one that Agabus said you're going to be in. And he's gone through a series of beatdowns by his own people. If you remember, he got back, and, and, and even if you imagine, he comes in and he's excited to James, who was the the leader of the church in Jerusalem, he said, James, you're going to believe all the things that were going on. James says, great, we're excited. Well, we got a problem. Remember the but? And that discouragement comes in. Well, we heard that, that people are saying that you're just not really into Judaism, that you're turning your back on the law and all of these things. So to prove it, we want you to pay for the Nazarite vow for these four guys and then want you to go and purify yourself according to the law. Paul says, okay, maybe feeling a little deflated, gets into the temple on the seventh day of the vow, and in that seventh day, then the mob comes. Why? Because it was the Jews from Asia and Macedonia had come around and and rallied the people against him and gave him a beat down. Roman soldiers had to come and rescue him. Going up to the stairs, he says, wait a minute, I need to explain myself, and And so the Roman guard says, okay, well, go ahead and explain yourself. He speaks, and the people get enraged again. And Paul gets yarded into the barracks, and he's about to be whipped by this Roman centurion. And he says, is it right that Roman citizens are beaten? He's already been beaten by his own people. He's about to be beaten by a Roman. Could it get any worse? Be careful when you say that. Roman soldier says, I don't want to mess with this. I'm going to take him to the Jewish council and really find out what's going on. And that's where we're at today. 
false testimony would challenge the council. We'll see Paul sink lower and lower into these points. And, and after this continual beating and this continual oppression and rejection time and time again, and, and keep in mind, Paul's not getting paid for this. He's doing it because he's compelled by the gospel of Jesus Christ to go out and to share. And at any point he could have said, okay, I'm done. But he continues on. How do you continue on? How do you make it through? We're going to discover that this morning. Let's stand as we give respect to God's Word. We'll read Acts 22, beginning with verse 30, all the way to verse 11 of 23. He says, But on the next day, wishing to know for certain why he had been accused by the Jews, he released him and ordered the chief priests and all the council to assemble and brought Paul down and set him before. And Paul, looking intently at the council, said, Brethren, I've lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. The high priest Ananias commanded those standing beside him to strike him on the mouth. And Paul said to him, God's going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Do you sit to try me according to the law and in violation of the law order me to be struck? But the bystander said, do you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I wasn't aware, brethren, that he was high priest. For it's written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. But perceiving that one group were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, Paul began crying out in the council, brethren, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. I am on trial for the hope and resurrection of the dead. And he said this, as he said this, there occurred a dissension between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor an angel, nor a spirit, but Pharisees acknowledge them all. And there occurred a great uproar, and some of the scribes of the Pharisaic party stood up and began to argue heatedly, saying, We find nothing wrong with this man. Suppose a spirit or an angel had spoken to him. And as a great dissension was developing, the commander was afraid Paul would be torn into pieces by them and ordered the troops to go down, take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. But on the night immediately following, the Lord stood at his side and said, Take courage, for as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome also. May God bless the reading of His Word. You can be seated. So we look at this account, this narrative, and one of the things that we discover is every day is another day that God gives you to be able to defend your faith. Now use that, that word, defend your faith, because that's what we're doing. We have to be able to give an answer for the reason, for the hope that lies within us as we studied last week. We give the proper apologetic. We are giving answers to people that are ignorant concerning the things of God. And Paul is here before the Jewish council within this. In verse 30, this Roman commander summons the whole Jewish council that is there. And he wanted to know why Paul was hated. Now again, you've got you to gotta put yourself in the mind of this Roman commander. He's got a job. He's over a thousand people. It's his job to make sure that there's peace in the land and there are riots. 
And if, if he's not doing his job in keeping peace, then in the Roman economy, he is what? He's out. He's going to go to the worst of the worst places or whatever. And so within this, he needs to keep peace. And, and so he's got this battle that happened in the temple courtyard. And now this Paul speaks and the people reject him. He's like, well, who is this guy? If he's not the Egyptian that started the riots, who I thought he was, and we covered that last week, then who is this guy? Why do they hate him so much? Well, let me get the council together, the Jewish council that is there. And so within this, you've got to understand the other aspect. The Roman government does not listen to the laws of the Jews and say, okay, well, just because you said kill him, I'm going to kill him. They don't do that. Now, the Jews wanted Paul dead, and the Roman commander said, I can't kill him unless there's just charge. And so I'm going to go to the leaders that we've established. Rome had established and accepted the fact that the Sanhedrin, which is the name of the Jewish council, 71 people, were in charge of the, they were the civil authority over Israel. It was first established by Moses back in Numbers, where he had established that there, were going to be, that there was going to be a series of leaders that were there. And so within this, he brings them before this council. Now, the, this Roman commander didn't have the authority to demand the council to be there. But imagine this. This Roman commander says to the Jewish council, who hates Paul, I would like for you to convene and have a trial of Paul. Well, what do you think the council is going to say? absolutely, you're serving them up on a plate. So they're going to get together, but they're not going to meet in their normal council place. The normal place of the council was in the court of the, the Jews inside the Temple Mount. It was a subcourt. It was known as the stone of the hewn stone and was this side courtyard that was there. They, they couldn't hold it there because no Gentile was allowed there, which meant that the Roman centurion couldn't be there. What was the best place to do it? On the steps of the Antonio Fortress. Bring them out. So he summons the council to come out to the steps. Now, they wouldn't have gone into the house because the Sanhedrin wouldn't go into a Gentile house because they would be what? Unclean. So he brings them out, these 71 guys, calls Paul up out of his chains to bring them there. And it is reminiscent of how Jesus stood trial with Pilate in front of the people. Do you remember the account? All the people were there. Pilate had Jesus in front of them to be able to give to this account. And like Jesus, they were unable to have a legitimate accusation against Paul. Just the same way as they did against Jesus. In fact, in Acts 25, 26, Paul later in front of Felix would say this, Yet I have nothing benefit, or the centurion in bringing Paul in front of Felix says, I have nothing definite about him to write to my Lord. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that all the investigation that take place and may have something right. In other words, we're, we've been trying this guy, and we can't find anything wrong with him. Was that true with Jesus? Sure. But yet, Paul's in this storm, and he didn't do anything wrong. Imagine that. God allows a storm in Paul's life, and he didn't do anything wrong. 
Have you ever thought when storms have come in your life, you're like, God, what did I do wrong? Why are you punishing me? Why has this come upon me? And the fact of the matter is, it has nothing to do with you personally, but it's an opportunity to witness through the storm, within this. And it was foretold that he would. Well, this Jewish council assembles on behalf of this Roman commander. They meet at the steps of the Antonio Fortress. And the Sanhedrin that that had been brought together were all there. The ruling party in the Sanhedrin at this time were the Sadducees. So the, they would, they were, it was kind of, there was three groups that were together. There were the Herodians, the Sadducees, and the Pharisees. But at this point in time, Ananias was a Sadducee. And there were more Sadducees than Pharisees that were there within this council. And one of the interesting things, the side notes to this, is the Romans, when they would occupy a land, they would try to figure out what kind of civil authority they would put in charge of the occupied land. They had an empire. They don't have enough people to be able to spread them all out. So the Sanhedrin were accepted as the ruling authority. They could do anything they want. From 6 AD to 66 AD, the Sanhedrin could do whatever they want, but they couldn't take a life. Even though Jewish law said that for blasphemy they could stone somebody, they weren't allowed to do that. So within this, the Sanhedrin group had got together. The other interesting thing that is noted is is they were only allowed to be rulers until 66 A.D. Why? Because in 66 A.D., Josephus tells us that the Jewish wars began where the Jewish zealots were attacking Rome. And when that took place, all bets went off. So again, you imagine this going on. Now, this is Paul's third inquisition in a very short period of time. Storm upon storm upon storm, not even getting a breather. Have you ever felt like that? Where it's like, I get hit, and I get hit, and I get hit, and I get hit. Always having to be on the defense. But the one thing that we know is this. You can be encouraged through the storm if you pause and reflect on the presence of Jesus within that. And realize this is what God is doing, and He's doing something greater. Well, in, in 23, verses 1 through 10... One of the things that, that we're going to see in this account is, while Paul's going to give a great witness and a great testimony, people are going to reject it. I had to learn early on that you can give the best defense of faith. You can, you can be in the best place in your mind. You can share with people. You can give to them truth. And regardless of what you say, they are going to reject what you say. Have you ever known that to be true? You, you give the best offense, you try to do. And, and one of the things that, that Paul experiences is that this antagonist is never going to be satisfied. These Jewish people that hate him that much are never going to be satisfied with what he has to say. Why? Because of their prejudice and their bias that is there. And the council is going to continue to abuse Paul. So he gets brought before the high priest. In verses 1 and 2, he's, and, and you've got to love verse 1. Paul is a stubborn, short guy with a big guy attitude. You know, when you look at the description, it says that he was, you know, not much to look at. Paul had a unibrow, bug eyes, knock knees. He was just not much of a guy. But he was gutsy. And it says he looked intently, and the original language means he stared him down. 
And so within this, and again, you've got to understand, Near Eastern culture is not like Western culture. They're serious. So Paul intently looks at the council and declared his intentions. In fact, Paul's motive, and he's a great orator, and, and his intention, you got to, Paul goes, I'm out number 71 to 1. I've already been beaten up, so he might be a little bit swollen. He's been in jail. He's been up all night. And he goes in and he looks intently. And he says, brethren, I need to talk to you. He initiates the, the, the conversation within this. He goes to the council. He says, brethren, I've lived my life perfectly good conscious before God up until this day. He took the first strike. He didn't, allow, he didn't go in passively and, and, and just stand there and wait for the council to talk to him. He set the stage. And he looked at him, stared him down, and he says, I'm innocent in my conscience up until this day, which is a powerful statement. One of the things that we got to understand is this. Why would he say that? Well, the explicit is, I'm innocent. The implicit is, you're making a big mistake in violating the law. I'm not the one that's wrong here. You're the one that's wrong. And he got that out there right in front. Keep in mind, Paul is a dual citizen. He is both Jewish and Roman at the same time. And why couldn't the centurion scourge him? Because no Roman citizen could be scourged unless there was an accusation that was worthy of the scourging. So now he's on trial before the Jewish leaders. And he says that my conscience is good. I am a good citizen both as a Roman and as a Jew. I have lived guilt-free. In fact, Paul, as a good Pharisee and a good Jew, lived up to the Pharisaical law as he knew it, guilt-free. He wasn't lying. Up to the level of what he knew, and he was a Pharisee above Pharisees that we're told in Scripture, he had lived according to the law, to the letter of the law. And his conscience was clear. That word conscious there means to know with moral sensitivity. There was no doubt. What Paul in essence is saying is, I've judged myself. You don't really need to judge me. I'm clear. I'm clean. Within this. And he made it a fact that, that it's my ethic to live that way. In front of all of these people. To give us insight about how Paul delivered this first punch, if you will, Ananias had him slapped without response. He, he rejected him out of hand and slapped him in the face, backhand him. Now, who is this Ananias guy? Well, when we take a look at the New Testament account, there were three high priests that are documented within the New Testament that is there. There's Annas, who was a high priest, and he was, he was the first high priest that, that's noted in the New Testament from A.D. Uh, 6 to A.D. 15. And then there was the son-in-law Caiaphas, that was A.D. 18 to A.D. 36, and then Ananias from A.D. 48 eighty fifty nine. We don't have the list of who was in the in the sides of that. But one of the things that we understand is that this Ananias was appointed into the office by Herod. Um, Herod Calchas is his name, and he was the cousin of Herod Agrippa. These were all bad people. 
Ananias was so bad that in 52 A.D. he was called to Rome because of his cruelty. He was not a nice guy. And he heard what Paul said and said, you're accusing us of wrong, slap him. Which was breaking the law. He had Paul slapped, which was a violation of the Jewish law within this. And it made Paul angry. Now, I, I look at verse 3 and I, I, I'm, I'm comforted by that. Here's a guy who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament that lost his temper. Why am I comforted by that? Because he saw this injustice and he reacted. And then I see his, his moral correction, his ethical correction, where he actually corrects himself for losing his temper. Now, he spouts out, and he, and he wasn't necessarily wrong, but he gets hit. And again, keep in mind, Paul has already been beaten by his own people, almost scourged. He's, he's had enough of it, and this guy comes up and doesn't like what he says, and has him backhanded across the face, which was an insult to backhand somebody for telling the truth. And he says, God's going to strike you the same way, you hypocrite. Now, again... This Ananias, as I said, was a bad guy. He was so pro-Roman that in 66 A.D., when the zealots were fighting against Rome, they went after Ananias because he was a sympathizer for Rome. So Ananias would hide in, a, in an aqueduct, and these Jewish zealots would take him out and kill him, which was fulfillment of Paul's prophecy. But does it make it right when a bad guy, an evil person harms you, hurts you, and you lose your temper and react? And the, and, and, and the answer is no. It doesn't make it right. Now, he calls him a whitewashed tomb, which is the same answer that Jesus said. And, and one of the things that I think is important for us to understand is that we're not called to be a doormat either. Paul called him out on his injustice and said that you've, you've broken the law, you're a hypocrite. And Paul was actually quoting or implying from the law of Leviticus chapter 19, verse 15. It says, you shall do no injustice in judgment. Ananias broke that law. You shall not be partial to the poor nor defer to the great, but you are to judge your neighbor fairly. Ananias broke that law, had him hit. Paul says, you're judging me, you're supposed to be the one that's keeping the law, and you're judging me for breaking the law, you're a hypocrite. Jesus would say the same thing in calling the religious leaders the hypocrite. In John 18, 21 to 23, he says, Why do you question me? Question those who have heard what I spoke to them, that they know what I've said. And when he had said this, one of the officers standing nearby struck Jesus, saying, Is that the way you answer the high priest? Jesus answered and said, I have spoke, If I have spoken wrongly, testify of the wrong. But if rightly, why do you strike me? Within this, We've got to understand that we will be wrongly accused. Is it wrong to call out the injustice? No. It's not wrong to call out the injustice. As long as you don't lose your temper in the process of calling out the injustice. Within that. Jesus did it right. Paul did it wrong. Jesus would teach in the Sermon on the Mount to turn the other cheek. Paul would have to learn this lesson the hard way. 
In fact, we know that Paul would learn the lesson because in 1 Corinthians 4.12, Paul would eventually say to the church at Corinth, And we toil working with our own hands, and when we are reviled, note, we bless. And when we are persecuted, we endure. We're all on this faith journey, and you know, it's going to be tough. And injustices are going to happen, and we're going to struggle. It's important that we learn from that. And, and so, what does Paul do in this struggle within this? Well, the people, the bystanders that are standing by says, you would revile the high priest. Now, Paul's response is interesting. And it can be taken one of two ways, and I'm not quite sure which way it is. I have my idea that I, that I, I, I would like. But he says, I didn't know that he was the high priest. And what did he mean by that? Well, one of two things either happened. Either the high priest was not wearing his royal garments that showed him off as being the high priest. And, or, and, and he didn't know that it was that high priest that ordered the hitting. Or he's using sarcasm. Which is saying is, I didn't know he was the high priest because he's not acting like the high priest. Now, on my human side, I like the sarcasm. But it still doesn't make it right. And it's a challenge within this. And Paul, being corrected by the bystanders, has to correct himself. Why? Because he realized he broke the law. In Exodus chapter 22, verse 28, it says, You shall not curse God nor curse a ruler of your people. That's a powerful verse. What does that mean? That means that the authority that is put over you is the authority that's allowed to be over you by God. And in this, it's saying, if you're cursing the leaders that are over you, you're actually cursing God. And Paul was reminded of that law, and he has to step back and go, that wasn't right. He would later speak of that in Romans chapter 13, verse 1. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. So how do we, how do we rationalize this tension? How do we look at this? Here's what I see embedded in this. Paul was apologizing for disrespecting the position, but not the person. It was the position that he had disrespected. It wasn't about the person, it was about the position. And you can't disrespect the position. And he separated the two. And that's something that we all should learn. That especially when we go through difficulties to keep the right perspective within this. And so in this, he, he in essence apologizes because he disrespected the position, recognizing the position was there because God said it to be there within that. And that's a tough lesson for us to learn. So what does Paul do? Paul, being very smart, settles himself into why he's there. Why is Paul even in front of the Sanhedrin? To witness. To witness what? The gospel. What's the gospel based on? The gospel is based on, based on the sacrificial death 
burial and resurrection of Jesus. And so he pivots. And so then he goes in verses 6 through 10 and says, But perceiving that one group Sadducee and, and the other ones are the Pharisees, he says this, Brethren, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees, and I am on trial for the hope and the resurrection of the dead. I'm on trial for the gospel within this. Now, as Paul pivots on this witness, he focuses on the main thing, not his personal injustice, not his personal trials or anything, but he uses his skill to put the attention on the main thing, which is what? That the Jews were rejecting Jesus Christ, the Savior, who rose from the dead within this. The other thing that I think is important within this is Paul never abandoned his Jewish faith. He never abandoned the fact that he grew up as a Pharisee. The Pharisees, out of the two groups, was the most prone to believe in the resurrection because they were the only group that believed in life after death. As Luke would explain in the narrative, the Pharisees would believe in life after death, angels and, and such things, where the Sadducees didn't. And so within that, the Sadducees just believed in this, this temporal existence that's there. And they reject eternal life. And the majority of the people that were there were Sadducees. In fact, in the Mishnah we read, those who say there is no resurrection of the dead are included among those who have no share in the age to come. Meaning, if you reject the resurrection of the dead, you have no share in eternal life. This is a, from a Jewish perspective. And who's Paul standing in front of? Jews. He says, it's our heritage, Pharisees, to believe in the resurrection of the dead. And I am preaching Jesus who rose from the dead. You see how he turns to his witness? This is why I'm here. And he focuses on that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 16 and 17, Paul would write to the church of Corinth, For if the dead are not raised... Not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Okay, I'm on trial. I've been smacked in the mouth by Ananias, who is not going to listen. And i got a group of people that are not going to listen. Who might listen? Who in this audience might listen? The Pharisees. So what does he do? From his Jewish heritage, he identifies as a Pharisee, and he was a Pharisee above Pharisees, and he witnesses. What is the response? Note what the Pharisees say. Suppose, or if, first conditional clause, Paul had heard this from divine revelation, and we believe he did, then we'd be fighting against God within this. It's interesting that this debate and dissension, as verse 7, rose up between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and they were divided within this. But in verse 9, the Pharisee party stood up and said, We find nothing wrong with this man. Suppose a spirit or an angel has spoke to him. Now, one thing happens is the attention turns off of Paul and turns on to a theological debate. And now we have this theological debate. And so you got 71 Near Eastern men in a space that are arguing. 
Could you imagine how loud that got? <laughs> Crazy. And they say, suppose if an angel that is there, we don't want to be wrong. And so now they have this larger debate. And a battle became between the two parties within this. And this Roman... In, in my sanctified imagination, I'm watching this Roman commander going, this was not supposed to turn out like this. Now i got a bigger ride that's going on. And they're angry. And Paul's in the middle of it. What are we going to do? They're going to tear him up. And now I'm going to lose a prisoner. He's going to get killed in the process. This, And he tells his guards to go down and go get him. Pull him out. Lysias was worried that this riot would get worse. And so he takes Paul out. Now, did Paul intend on turning one group upon the other? After much prayer and consideration, I don't think so. I think Paul was trying to make the best that he could out of a very bad situation. And in his skill, he chose to speak wisely, at least to a group of people that were there. You never find Paul trying to save his own skin. Now, I've read a bunch of commentators and they'll say, yeah, you know, Paul was trying to cause a distraction or division or anything like that. But you don't find Paul really doing that. You, Paul, you find Paul remaining in the midst of the storm so that the gospel would be preached regardless of what was going on. And in your storm, wherever you're at, don't try to get out. Try to look at the opportunity that is there. God, why do you have me here? And who do I get to share with? Whatever that case may be. I don't, I don't find Paul to be argumentative just for the sake of being argumentative. I find him to be a very skillful, attentive orator that paid attention to the circumstance that the Lord allowed him to get into for a purpose within that. Unfortunately, he doesn't get to preach a sermon here because Lysias says, get him out of there. Yards him out and brings him up to the top, puts him back in the jail cell, which brings us to verse 11. But on the night after being in the jail cell following, the Lord stood at his side within this. Now again, imagine Paul. Challenged by the church. Beaten by my own people. Put on trial. Riots are happening. Roman guards don't know what to do with me. I can't get out of this cell because somebody's going to assassinate me or kill me. I guess it all ends here. In the darkness. In the cell. By myself. It says, but on the night. And I don't think Luke puts that word in there just because. Night represents darkness. Isolation, abandonment within this. Paul was beaten down to the lowest point that he's been in a very long time, and he needed reassurance. He had been in the temple, he had been with his people, he explained himself to the Jews, he addressed the Roman commander, he addressed the Roman council with all of these things. Every time I try to be a witness for you, Jesus, I get rejected. I'm done. I'm done. I quit. 
Now, the text doesn't say that. But what's implied? Note what happens. The Lord stood at his side. There are four different accounts where Jesus came to Paul physically and revealed himself to Paul. The Lord stood by his side. The Lord came to him in that jail cell. The word stood or stood over, apistus, means to stand by, but it can also be translated to stand over with him. The presence of the Lord was there in this dark moment. And he received the word of assurance, take courage. That's a powerful word. It doesn't say, feel encouraged. It says, take courage. It's a present active imperative. It means you need to do this now. It is your decision. Taking courage is a decision. It is not an emotional response. Take courage. Why? Because you don't have any courage right now. You need to make that choice. You need to be bold. Paul lost his focus. Understandably so. He lost focus. And I think after his beatdowns, yeah. We find time and time again this take courage being applied to Israel and even to us. In Deuteronomy 31.6 six says, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or tremble at them, for the Lord your God is the one who goes, note, with you, and He will not fail you nor forsake you. That was given to the nation of Israel as they were to go into the land. Would they have storms? Yep. What were they told to do? Take courage. Take courage within this. Not only was he told to take courage, but he was told, and I'm not done with you yet. I have a purpose. And that purpose has not been fulfilled. You're going to stay the course. Stay the course. As you have solemnly witnessed, you've done a great job, you're going to go to Rome. As promised. Acts 19.21, Paul knew that he would. It says, now after these things were finished, Paul purposed in his spirit to go to Jerusalem. And after that, he had passed through Macedonia at Ki, saying, and after I've been there, I must also go to Rome. Paul had a perspective. I'm going to Rome on a cruise ship. No. You're going in the bottom of the ship. In, in chains. After a beating, I have a saying that I shared with my grandson a while back when he first started playing soccer. He'd get frustrated, and he just needed to be encouraged. And, and, and the phrase is, quitters never win, winners never quit. Quitters never win, winners never quit. Discouragement is just that. Discourage. It means to rob of courage. And if Satan can get you to lose your courage, you're done. But Jeremiah 29 11 says, I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for calamity to give you a future and a hope. Paul, hang in there. You're not done yet. You may be beat down, discouraged, and in the dark, in the bottom of a cell, but you're not done yet. 
I've got a plan for you. And understand, even in the lowest points of our lives, even in the darkest days, pause and re- realize that Jesus is standing right next to you and He will have a word for you. If you listen, He's there. And just pause and reflect and you'll find that encouragement with Him. Let's pray. God, I thank You. Lord, as we... Uh, Consider this and these storms and these difficulties that happen in our lives. And they're going to get worse. I can't imagine uh, in the context of the, of the individual storms that are represented in this room. Yet, God, you have proven yourself to be faithful. Time and time and time again. And God, you never change. You're always the same. And your promises endure. And though we have gone through a storm and and rejected by many and beat down, in our lowest moments, you come to us to bring that encouragement. And may we pause and, and reflect and receive that encouragement for us. And maybe this morning you're in the midst of a storm. Or maybe this morning you're finding yourself in that dark place. Not able to find hope. You're a child of God. And he, Jesus promised, I will never leave you, nor will I forsake you. And I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Let His words of encouragement sit and soak in your heart to lift you up. God, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now and always my heart and soul will sing for all my days and the days of eternity a song of praise to the Lord Almighty
thank you that you are faithful. And wherever we're at, you're by our side. And we can trust in you. If you choose not to divert the storm, but take us through it, you won't leave us there. You'll walk with us. And you'll bring the peace that passes all understanding that will guard our hearts and mind. May we know that. May we rest in that. And look for those opportunities in the storm to share your love to those that don't know and share truth. As we go out this day, may everything we say and do make you smile. And we thank you for our time in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen and praise Jesus. Thanks for joining us in the study of God's Word with Pastor Kerry Wacker. We'd love to have you join us in person for worship each Sunday morning at 9 a.m. or 1045 a.m. We also meet Wednesday nights at 630 p.m. Warren Community Fellowship is located at 56523 Columbia River Highway in Warren, Oregon, between Scappoose and St. Helens. For more information about Warren Community Fellowship or about WCF Ministries, call us at 503-397-4387. And don't forget to like us on Facebook.